I also want to give this report. About half of the staff went down to Little Rock, Arkansas this last week uh, to a conference. I hate conferences. I really don't uh, like them. I, I rarely get anything out of them. And I have to be dragged to them. And so Janice dragged me to this conference. But this one, I liked. I don't like everything, of course, but I liked a lot of it. I was surprised. The whole theme, that, that, a little background here. About four or five years ago, God gave Janice, our executive pastor, a kind of a, a, a vision uh, to communicate to us something. And it was a vision of the church as a bridge that would be bridging the suburbs and the city and, and you know, just uh, uh, tearing down walls and, and, and connecting people and a lot of things like that. And like a lot of her, her visions, it, it was a kind of a catalyst for us to begin to view things in a, in a new way. Well, at this conference, everything was built around the middle of the bridge. You walk into the church, they got a great big bridge all around the sanctuary, and the church is on one side, and uh, a city is on the other, representing the world. And um, all their slides had a picture of the George Washington Bridge behind them, uh, and that's a bridge that Janice, a picture of it, Janice has a picture of this in her in her office, just kind of reminding her what uh, her idea of what the church is supposed to be. And the the, the 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 thing, the the theme of the conference was so completely consistent with the vision that God has given us. Uh, the thing it's up against, this whole conference was about, is that the church to a large degree, isn't this true? Uh, the church to a large degree defines itself as sort of an island away from the mainland. The mainland's the world and we're this island of holiness and righteousness and truth. And, and the church sometimes thinks that its job is to judge and to holler at and to get mad at the mainland. And, and to tell them how they're doing things wrong and they're supposed to clean up the racks so that we feel more comfortable and our rights aren't violated. What this conference was about is that Jesus didn't do that. Jesus incarnated himself in, in people's lives. He entered by his love. He built bridges to people to get into their lives to express the love that God is. And so the church is called, this whole conference was about this, the church is called to, to, uh, to serve the world, to express love to the world. Above all things, we've been seeing the last month or so in our messages. Above all, Paul says love. Live in love. Love, love is the center. If you're, doing, if you're working in love, everything else you need to do is going to get done. But if you're not working in love, there's nothing else worth getting done. And so the church is to love. And the conference was about practical ways that you can mobilize an army to express to the city and all your surrounding environment the love that God is. And they have down Little Rock just seen this uh, incredible thing happening throughout their city. Because uh, one church begins to do it, other churches get on board, and now they're in the press all the time. they got news articles on this. Uh, it's really amazing the glory that God is getting by what they're doing. We're going to, in the, in the months to come, be trying to integrate some of the insights we got from this conference and asking the question, how can we most efficiently mobilize us, all of us, as an army to impact the city, to just demonstrate, to serve? We're already doing some of this. We've got kindness, uh, random acts of kindness. We've worked in the, in the uh, uh, homeless shelter and at the battered women's shelter in a number of different areas. But we want to be doing this more on a large scale. But it was a very, very exciting thing. Now, we've been talking about love as the center. Love is the, the central thing that we're called to do because love is the central thing that God is. What we saw several weeks ago was this, that uh, the garden, the, in the middle of the garden was a tree. Actually, in the middle of the garden were two trees, and they represent both a provision and a prohibition. The provision is the tree of life, which is, shows us that God will, will, will always be walking with us. He gives us eternal life. All that we need is found in Him. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the prohibition. And it was God's loving, no trespassing sign that preserves the boundary between us and God. And the boundary 
is this. God wants to reserve for Himself judgment. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's the one who alone knows true good and evil. Our job is to love. Our job is to be in the image of God in the little domain that He's given us, and that is to be like God in how we love and how we rule the world. Our job is not to know good and evil. The fall happened when Eve entered the center. She made herself the center of existence. She grabbed hold of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so instead of becoming a lover, she became a judger. And so it is. This is not just a story about what happened a long time ago. It's a story of each one of our lives. When we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we critically evaluate and we live in that judgment, it blocks us doing the one thing that God calls us to do, and that is to love. A diagram that we uh, gave several weeks ago was this. At the center of everything is God. God is the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, perfect, ecstatic, eternal, unsurpassable love. That's who God is. God is love, it says in 1 John. God overflows in love towards us. His love, his love radiates, as it were, just overflows towards us. God creates us with a God-shaped vacuum, a Trinity-shaped vacuum, as it were, because He wants to fill us with His love. Our need is for unconditional love and unsurpassable worth, and only God can give that to us. And in God's goal for the world, this comes out of John 17 and a number of other passages that we've discussed before. And let me say this, by the way. Each week I'm going to build on, on this whole theme. And uh, so I encourage you to be here consistently. But also, we have on the website study guides, uh, what we post every Sunday night, based on the message. And I encourage you to download it and to study it and use it in your small groups. Because this is stuff that we've just got to internalize. So God creates us with this need for unconditional worth, unsurpassable value that only He can fill. And in God's design, God's purpose for the world, we would be filled with that. Like the song we sing about, flowing love. It's about God's love flowing in us, abiding in us, coming towards us. And we would then reflect it back to God. That's what worship is. He loves us, then we respond by loving Him. Then we'd overflow towards one another, unilaterally, just out of the abundance of life that we have. And as everybody does this in, in, in God's design, the whole thing creates, as it were, another triangle. It, cre- it replicates the triune God. God's triune, perfect, ecstatic, unsurpassable love is replicated in creation, and therefore He's glorified. It's like a giant mirror of who God is, and that's why God created the world. And our joy is we get to participate in that. The same love that God is throughout eternity is given to us and flows through us. That's God's goal. But what we also saw several weeks ago is that by placing herself in the center and by us placing ourselves in the center and thinking it's our job to judge rather than just love, what happens is we block the flow of God's love to us. God still is God. God still is unsurpassable love. God's love still flows to us. But our sin, our judgment, blocks it. Blocks us from getting it and therefore blocks us from giving it. But our need for love, and uh, for unconditional love and unsurpassable worth remains. We still need that to fill that, but now we're not getting it filled by God, so we try to get it filled from one another. We try to get it from the world. We try to get it from our doing and by our achieving. It never works, but that's what the world's all about. Rather than living life out of a fullness, we now live life out of a vacuum. And what blocks the whole thing is that sin. I want us to really be looking carefully at, this, at the nature of this sin. That's what we started two weeks ago. Because until we understand what it is that keeps us from receiving God's love, we'll never fully be able to give God's love. You can't give what, you're not, what you don't have. So we're going to become the outrageous lovers that God wants us to be. 
We're going to have to be getting outrageous love from Him. So I want us to pay close attention to what it is in our life that keeps us from getting that, that outrageous love. How does, how does this fall happen? And that's what Genesis 3 is all about. I want to read the first, five, first four verses of this once again. It outlines the deception that leads us into the sin that blocks God's love flowing into us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, the center, the prohibition, the no trespassing sign, that which everything else revolves around. We must not eat that. You will not surely die, the serpent said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, like they're shut now, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There is in this passage a lie about God and a lie about us. We discussed the lie about God two weeks ago, just by way of review here. What the serpent is suggesting is that God is not the all-good, all-loving, unsurpassable, wonderful God that He is. What the serpent is suggesting, he's painting a false picture of God here. And what he's suggesting is that God is actually intimidated by Eve. He's intimidated by that tree like he didn't put it there. His motive for having this tree is is not good. Rather, he's trying to protect his territory. He's telling you not to eat of this because he's threatened by you. If you eat of it, you'll be just like him. And he doesn't want any, any competition. The serpent is actually suggesting that God got to where he's at by eating of this tree. So his serpent's really suggesting that the tree is God. It is the one that, that uh, grants divinity to whoever eats of it. A false picture of God. And what we said two weeks ago was this. Behind all that is sin is a false picture of God. We usually aren't aware of it. We usually can, with our mouth, say the right orthodox things. But what's really going on in our mind when we think about God is a picture of someone who is less than Jesus Christ. He's not the all-wonderful, all, all, all beautiful, loving God that He says He is. God's answer to the fall we saw two weeks ago is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the image of God we saw. He's the Word of God we saw. He's the expression of God. He is, the Bible says, the exact imprint of God. He's the Word of God. The, the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ. And so what we saw two weeks ago is this. Everything about our getting healthy again, getting our lifeline with God restored once again, hangs upon our having a true picture of who God is. And who God is is Jesus Christ. Amen? You can have a lot of questions about God. There's a lot of mysterious things about God. There's a lot of mysterious passages about God in the Bible. It's okay uh, to, to not know a lot of things. But what you've got to know is what you know. And what we can know about God is that He's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the anchor for the soul. Whatever else you think, don't, don't, don't get a picture of God based on an obscure verse that you read or based on your life experience or based on your expectations or based on how good your day's been going or how bad your day's been going. Resolve it in the core of your being that God is Jesus. Jesus is God. If you see Him, you see the Father. Lock it in and don't go anywhere else but but there. Don't look to the right. Don't look to the left. Don't look above. Don't look below. Look in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what God is like. This is what God thinks about you. Now the serpent lied about God. Because if you get a, a picture of God that's deceptive, you won't go to God for fullness of life. You can't trust God. God can't or God won't give you fullness of life. Which means you're on your own. Now you have to try to get fullness of life yourself. 
And so with a lie about God, there is also a lie about Eve. The lie about Eve was this. He says, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What he's saying there is, Eve, your eyes are shut. You're being duped. You want your eyes opened? Look at that tree. Doesn't it look good? The enemy was suggesting that there's something wrong, there's something defective, there's something inadequate about Eve that she can fix on her own. Because he's already lied that God isn't sufficient to meet her needs. So Eve, here's, I'm here to do you a favor. Here's how you meet your needs. Reach out and get that tree. Ask yourself the question, how do you tempt somebody who's got everything? It's like, what do you buy somebody for Christmas when they've got everything? You ever have that problem? Well, this is the serpent's problem with Eve. How do you tempt somebody who's got everything? She's walking with God in the cool of the day. She's happy. She's content. She's fulfilled. She's in union with God. Love's being poured into her. Love's flowing through her. What, how are you going to tempt her? How do you tempt someone who is full? And the answer is, get them to believe that they're not full. Then they'll try to get full, even though they already are full. You following me on this? It says in Genesis chapter 1, that God created us in His image and likeness. Now see, we already are in the image and likeness of God. So the enemy comes along and says, hey Eve, you can be like God. And if Eve had been thinking straight, if she hadn't already been entertaining a little bit of the lie about who God is, if she'd been thinking straight, she would have said, hey, well, you've got to do better than that, because I already got that. I'm in the image and likeness of God. So you come along saying, I can be in the likeness of God. So what? You see, so the enemy's trying to tempt her with something she already is by thinking that she's not that. Actually, what's going on here is this. We're, we are in the image of God, in the likeness of God, because we're supposed to love like God loves. We're not in the image of God in the sense that we're supposed to judge like God judges. So the enemy, you've got to put in your thinking caps to follow me here because it's starting to get worked up. So the enemy tries to get Eve to become what she already is in a way that she's not supposed to do, so she can't do the image of God in the way that she is supposed to. When you start, I'll, I'll repeat it, but I can't do it again. Can you repeat that? I, 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 in trying to get Eve to be in the image of God in a way that God says don't be, she stops being in the image of God in the way that she's supposed to be. Because you can't judge and love at the same time. So the, the, the deception is to get Eve to think that she's not full as she is. She's not in the image of God as she is. This strategy, and I want us to see this, this is the same strategy the enemy uses on us over and over and over again. He gets us to think that there's something inadequate, defective, wrong in our life so that we spend all of our, our life and our identity trying to get what God has already given us for free in Jesus Christ. What that sets in motion, Holy Spirit causes to land strong in our minds. What that sets in motion is this. It's a way of living life that is utterly contrary to all of God's goal for creation. It, it, when you live in this lie, it's what the Bible calls the flesh, or the natural man, or life in Adam. These are all expressions that denote the same thing. It's life lived out of emptiness rather than fullness. Life lived trying to fix what isn't even broken. I want us to really get this, because we're so used to, all of us are, um, living in the flesh that it's hard for us sometimes to even think about an alternative way of living. And we'll never live in the fullness, we'll never receive and never live in the fullness of life that God has for us until we correctly diagnose the lie that's keeping us from receiving it. So I want to contrast life in the flesh with life as it is in Christ. Who are we in Christ? And we're going to just go over a couple of ways of, of thinking about this. Life in, in Christ and life in the flesh. 
Life in Christ. This is, this is uh, where your humanity has been restored. This is where, uh, where you understand that who you are is defined by God, not by your doing. Life in Christ is, is uh, characterized by you are statements. Whenever the Bible talks about who we are in Christ, it talks about who we are in Christ. It doesn't talk about what we have to do to get into Christ. It talks about who you are already in Christ. And someone who's living in Christ, who is, is walking consistent with who they are in Christ, what's dominant in their mind is who they are. Not what they do, but who they are. Whereas life in the flesh is always characterized by you-need-to-do statements. And it was dominant in a person's mind when they're walking in the flesh is, I need to do, I better do, I gotta do. Their whole identity is found in doing. You see? Another way of thinking about it is this. In Christ, what's dominant is our being. It's about our being. What's primary is our being. Your being, just being, the simple fact that you are, has unsurpassable worth. You are loved for who you are. You have unsurpassable worth. It attaches to your being. Apart from all you're doing, it attaches to your being. Sometimes we're so addicted to our doing that we even have trouble imagining what it would be like to be loved for free. And that's the very thing that keeps us from experiencing the fact that we are loved for free. In Christ, it's about your being. It's about your being. It's about your being. In the flesh, it's about your doing. It's about your activity. You get worth by what you do. You feel good about yourself when you do the right thing, but your worth goes down a couple of meters when you don't do the right thing. You're constantly trying to acquire, trying to get, trying to grab the fruit, thinking that your eyes are shut when they're already open. You're, you're constantly trying to acquire for yourself worth. Your identity, your significance, your self-esteem is all based on how you can perform, on what you can achieve, on what you can buy, on what people think about you, on the opinions of others, and you live in that. You're living out of a center of emptiness rather than a center of fullness. In Christ, all that we do is about expressing who we already are. A person who is in Christ will do a lot of stuff. They'll sacrifice a lot of stuff. They engage in spiritual disciplines. They, they, they you know, are constantly trying to improve their prayer life. And, and, and that's all good. They sacrifice in their life. They sacrifice financially to see the, see the kingdom of God go forward. They sometimes do it in outrageous ways. But a person who knows who they are in Christ does all of that not to get something they don't already have. They do it because they've already got it. Getting it? It's not that they're getting more holy or getting more righteous or getting God to like them a little bit more by what they're doing. They do it because that's who they are. It's like, I'm a male, so I'm going to act male, all right? I don't act male to try to become a male. It's, it's who I am. And I'm pretty good at it, I might say. All right? I'm male. Yeah. But, you know, I, it'd be pretty sad if I had to sort, sort of establish my maleness by what I do. Now, there are probably guys who try to do that, but I'm not one of them because I am a male. I don't just do male things. Okay, so also if you are in Christ, you do, you do Christ stuff. His Spirit is in you. You sacrifice outrageously. You engage in spiritual disciplines. You work on this, you work on that. But you don't do it out of a deficit. You do it out of a fullness. Whereas in the flesh, it's all about emptiness. It's all about acquiring. Insofar as we live in the flesh, everything we do is motivated by hunger. And so in a religious version of the flesh, which is really no different than a secular version of the flesh, but in a religious version of the flesh, people, people sacrifice, but they, they, they do it because they want God to like them a little bit more, or because they're going to impress somebody, or at least they can get the devil off their back and they feel guilty if they don't do it. And they're always about acquiring, they're always about striving, that there's no rest, there's no peace, there's no joy there, because they're trying to get what God already has given them for free. 
A world of difference. Now, the person in Christ and the person outside of Christ might do the same things. But the person in Christ is doing it for an entirely different reason. Like an artist who wants to express their life, that's, that's what the person in Christ does. The person in the flesh is always striving to get. They may sacrifice financially, you know, but, 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 but they do it because they want God to notice, they want God to like them more, and they're going to feel guilty if they don't do it, and, and they're looking for that little cash payback based on the promise that you'll reap what you sow. Whereas the person who does it out of fullness just does it because it's the right thing to do and it's consistent with, with who they are. Life in Christ is characterized by grace. Your being is given to you. How many of us did something prior to our existence in order to earn the right to be born? No, you know what? It was just given to you. It, it, it is a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything. It was given to you. Your salvation is the same way. It's given to you. It's a free gift. Your worth in Christ, despite your sin, is given as a gift. You can only get it as a gift. If you're trying to, get, if you're trying to do something to get it, you're not going to get it as a gift. It's about grace. All our worth, our, our, the, our identity, the unsurpassable love that we have is given as a gift. It, 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 that's why it's grace. It has to be grace. If it's not grace, it's not coming from God. Whereas in the flesh, it's always about works. Everything's about works. You're always achieving. You're always acquiring. You're always trying to get. In a religious context, you're trying to get it by doing the religious good deeds and memorizing the Bible verses and, and, and doing what a good Christian's supposed to do because you're trying to acquire some approval by God or get the devil off your back or get some friends to like you or at least shut up the conscience in your brain. A person in Christ does it out of a fullness of their okay because they're already okay in Christ by grace. In Christ, we do things out of freedom. This is freedom, folks. This is freedom. Freedom is, is the ability to, to love God as you are, to love yourself as you are, and then to love others as they are. That's freedom. Life in Christ is free because you're not addicted to the things of the world. You don't need anything other than Jesus Christ to be okay. Now, you want things, you like things, you approve of things, but you don't need them for your identity. That's freedom. They don't have a hold on you because you're not grabbing onto it. You're not addicted to it. Your life is found in Jesus Christ. You maybe still try to, as an expression of the worth that you have, you, you try to do the best that you can, but you're not addicted to that. You're not addicted to the job promotion. So if you don't get it, your world doesn't come to an end. And if someone doesn't like you, your world doesn't come to an end. And if your friends leave you, your world doesn't come to an end. And if your finances collapse, your world doesn't come to, to, to an end. And even if you fall into sin, your world doesn't come to an end because you understand that your identity and your worth and your lovability isn't found in what you do, it's found in who you are. That's freedom. Freedom is, is really, to, it's when you understand that your life is in Christ, so even this life is negotiable. Easy come, easy go. Uh, even if I die, I don't stop being who I am. I don't stop being loved by God. So you know what? I'm not even going to cling to life itself. And here's the irony. When you don't need it, you get more of it. You only live life freely when you don't need to live. It's really true. Life was meant to be lived like this. You don't fear death. You don't live in anxiety. You're not living in worry. You're not clutching on to things. You're not worried about approval. Who likes you? Who doesn't like you? What do they think about you? Whatever. That's not life to you. You're free from that. That's, we're meant to live free like this. If you lose your life, you'll find it. In fact, you find that when you live in freedom, the things you don't need, you get more of. It's like a person who desperately needs friends in order to have worth is, is going to end up not having very many friends. Whereas a person who has an identity in Christ, they like friends and they get a lot of them because they don't need them. You see what I'm saying? That's freedom. That's freedom. Whereas in the flesh, it's all about bondage. It's bondage because you're grabbing on to stuff as a way of feeding the, the, uh, the, 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 the hole in your soul. 
And you grab onto it, so it grabs onto you. And now, as a matter of worth, your life, your identity, your value is found in all that. You are in bondage. You're utterly in bondage. You're in bondage to futility because you'll never get full. The lie is that if only you ate of the tree, if only you acquired more stuff, if only somebody liked you, if only dad didn't do this or mom would have done this when you were a kid, if only, if only, you'd be full. But it's a lie. It's an utter lie. Living in the flesh is like sitting down and eating a seven-course meal and having every morsel of food get stuck in your teeth. It never gets to the stomach. It's like, picture this person like a giant chipmunk stuffing food. And it tastes good. It tastes good. But it doesn't nourish you. It doesn't fill you up. And you keep believing the lie that if only you had another dessert, if only you had another steak, well, then you'd be full. But you never will get full because it doesn't get into your soul. And you know why it doesn't get into your soul? It's because your soul receives one thing and one thing only. You need unconditional love and unsurpassable worth. And so if you're trying to get it by what you do, it can't be unconditional and it can't be unsurpassable. Whatever, when you get what you're trying to get, you still don't get it. Okay, because the worth that you're trying to get attaches to what you did to get it. It doesn't attach to, to, attach to your being, which needs it. You follow me on this? Don't, don't check me out. Okay, it's like this. It's like this. Uh, you know, let, let's say that my life to me, I'm not getting life from Christ, so I need you to think that I'm a good preacher, all right? I, I really need you to think, I'm not going to tell you that, of course, because if I did, then you wouldn't think I was a good preacher. So I will hide that, and now I'm going to try to be a good preacher. And so I perform, and I'm putting out, and I'm trying to acquire, and I'm trying to get, because I need love. I need some affirmation. I need to feel like I'm a worthwhile human being. The thing is this. Let's say you do think that, that I'm a good preacher, and you, you know, say amen, and you congratulate me. Now, it tastes good at first. Mmm, that tasted good. And I'm thinking I'm getting satisfied, but you know what? I'm still empty on the inside. The reason is because my spirit knows that what you were affirming was not me as just my being as a person. You were affirming my preaching ability, and I am not my preaching ability. You following this? The food attaches to the wrong stuff. It attaches to whatever you did to get it, so it can't attach to who you are apart from doing it. All right. But see... Now, I, I would like you to think I'm a good preacher, but you know what? I really don't care. I, I, I mean, I, I, I want to I express the worth that I have in doing the role of the kingdom that I have and, and, and let you, you know, I, so I want to be as good as I can. But you know what? Even if you think I absolutely suck as a preacher, I'm going to be the same Greg Boyd. I'll have the same worth, same self-esteem. I'm going to be, you know, having the same sort of self-love. So you know what? You can go home. I mean, it's just, it, I, I don't need you. I love you, I love you, but I don't need you. And in fact, I can only love you because I don't need you. If I needed you, I couldn't love you. I'd be using you to feed myself. And so it is with all of our life. You either are going to live in celebration or desperation. That's the next point here. When you're in Christ, life is about a celebration of who you already are. You got it as a gift. Your worth, your lovability, you got it as a gift. You just say yes to it. You are that. You live life out of a celebration. Life was meant to be lived free. It was meant to be lived as a dance. It's meant to be lived as an expressionistic portrait where we're painting our life with the things that we do. You can celebrate when you no longer need your environment to feed you. But life, life in, in, uh, in, in the flesh is, 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 is life in desperation. Because you're always hungry, always trying to get, always trying to strive. It's always work. You're always mad. You're always frustrated because you're not getting what you need. And you, have, you buy into the lies that if you just got it, you'd be full. You, people live life in one of two modes. And, and, and I'm painting the picture kind of extreme here. I'm sure we go back and forth. But you either live life out of a celebration of who you already are, or you live life out of desperate, desperation trying to, to become what you think you're not. 
to radically, radically, radically different ways of life. And ultimately, life in Christ is real life. Life in the flesh is death. God created us to live freely. Finally, life in Christ is life in love. It's life in love. Because now you receive the unconditional, unsurpassable love and worth that God ascribes to you. You walk in the unsurpassable love and unconditional worth that God ascribes to you. So now you can give unsurpassable worth and unconditional love to everyone around you. You're not trying to feed yourself off of them, so you have something to give. I can't love you if I'm using you to feed myself. Whereas life in the flesh is never about unconditional love. In life in the flesh, and so far as we're living and thinking and operating and feeling in the flesh, it's about judgment. Because we're always trying to get stuff from people, so we put up a critical filter and we're always assessing what is good, what is bad, what we like, what we don't like. We have all these running commentaries. Even our judgment helps feed us as we look down on somebody and think that we're better than they are. That feeds us a little bit. We're getting life out of our judgment and we're judging things on the basis of whether they give us life or not. And all of it precludes us loving with a radical, outrageous love like God loves. The only way we can give love to the world around us, and this is the center of the center of the center, the only way we can give unconditional, unsurpassable worth to everyone we come in contact with is if we're getting unconditional, unsurpassable worth from God for free. Now you've got something to give. All of this, this distinction here, what separates us is a lie. What, what, what determines whether you're walking in, in, the, in, the, in, in Christ or whether you're going to walk in the flesh is whether or not you believe a lie. And the lie comes right out of Genesis 3. It's, it's the lie that, you're, that there's something deficient about you. You're not full. God isn't meeting all your needs. You need to work. You need to strive. You need to, 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 to uh, go after things and acquire things in order to become the full human being that you know that you're supposed to be. It's a lie. And the truth is this. All you need, all you've ever needed is one thing, and that is life, and life is found in Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus Christ, you have everything you'll ever need. Amen? You've got it already. You have it for free. All you ever need is found in Him. Now, maybe that sounds odd to you because you're not experiencing that. You know, it just sounds too weird. But the, the drive in your life that's leading you to be a perpetual doer rather than just a, you're a human doing rather than a human being, uh, the lie that's driving you there is that you don't have it already. But I'm here to tell you that in Jesus Christ, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, it says in Ephesians 1, uh, in, in Christ Jesus. The fullness of God's love abides in you. You need love, you got love. You need peace, you got peace. You need joy, you got joy. You need power, you got power. You need life, you've got all the life you could ever get in Jesus Christ. You need to feel important. You need to feel worth. That's natural. You were made for that. But what you've got to know is you've got it in Jesus Christ. Now you still like you still like getting loved and you still like you know, things being peaceful around you and you still like people recognizing you and feeling significant. That's normal. But don't need it. You don't need it. What you need is Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ you've already got it. Amen. Ultimately the only... See, the only problem, really, when, it, when you boil it down, the only problem is in our thinking that we've got a problem. And then we spend our life trying to fix the problem that we don't have. We believe the lie that, that God can't be counted on to give it, make us full, so we believe the lie that we're not full, so we believe the lie that we've got to get full, and then we spend our lives chasing fullness, and our very, the very act of chasing fullness prevents us from experiencing the fullness that we've already got. You're following it. I'll say that again. We believe the lie that God can't be counted on to make us full. So we believe the lie that we're not actually full. So we believe the lie that we can do stuff to get full. So we spend our life chasing the fullness. And that's the very thing that prevents us from experiencing the fullness that we've already got. You don't ever sit around and enjoy life because you're too busy trying to get life. 
And it's all based on a lie. Oh, there's such joy, there's such freedom in just right now, just letting it go and being, just be, be who you are, be real, just be there, let God be who He is, you be who you are, and you know what? You don't have a problem in the world. I'm oversimplifying things. Yeah, you got a budget to fix, and yeah, 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 yeah. But you know what? Compared to who you are in Jesus Christ, those things become insignificant. And now you've got an energy and a power and a wisdom to do something about them because you don't need them fixed to be okay. Oh, you live life far more effectively when you're living it out of a center of okayness rather than out of a deficit you're trying to, to fix. Life was meant to be lived this way. People who live in the flesh, and all of us do to some degree, let's be honest here, we get no life from appearing to be more holy than we are. We're all, we're all guilty of this. This is all of our struggle. But we've got to know what the struggle is really about if we're ever going to really be uh, walking in the fullness that, that God has for us. When we live in the flesh, we live in what I call the if-only zone. The if-only zone is, is this variation of the same lie, and it's this. If only things were different, then I'd be full. If only I had, if only I did, if only they had, if only they did, well, then things would be okay. And we live in that lie. If we're thinking about the past in the if-only zone, we're full of regrets. Living in, a, in the identity that if, if only things had been different or if only we had done something different, then we'd have more worth now than we have right now. It's a lie. And it will gnaw you and eat at you and, and just undermine the quality of your life. If only. Full of regret, regrets. If you live in the if only zone, you'll be full of un- resentment and unforgiveness. And it's a cancer. If you live in the if-only zone in the present, you're full of frustration and friction. Because friction, uh, you're always trying to, you know, just make it... If only they do this, if only, if, if only I had this, and you're always trying to fix that. And if you live in the if-only zone with regard to the future, you're full of anxiety and full of worry. If you're living in Christ, you realize that the only if-only that is a real if-only is this. If only you believe that what God said about you is true, well then, you wouldn't be worried about any other if-onlys. You following this? The only of only that's really an if only is the if only we believe. The only thing that matters, Paul says in Galatians 5, 6 is this. It is faith working through love. Faith energized by love. The only if only that really you need to think about is this. Do you believe that what God says about himself is true and therefore what God says about you is true? Live in that. Love in that. Celebrate in that. Make your identity in that. If you get that done, you're not going to be, you'll be able to let go of all the other deceptive if-onlys where you're undermining the quality of your life based on what didn't happen or should happen or might happen or whatever. And now you've got fullness of life. We all live to some degree in these lies, the lies of the flesh. Variations of the serpent's lie in the garden. Your eyes are closed. We all live in this. We all live in our doing rather than the being, rather than doing as an expression of our being. The lies come to us in a lot of different ways. The whole culture is permeated with it. We get bombarded and, uh, you know, through our upbringing and through TV shows and all sorts of stuff that our identity is found in our doing, not our being, and we, and we accept those, and therefore we don't live in the fullness that God has for us. So we can't love like God loves. We can try out of our doing to do that, but it never flows out of a fullness. One of the ways that the lies often come to us is, is because growing up, we all fall, we all sin, we all make screw-ups, we all do, do mistakes. And what can happen in this world is that the, the natural sort of embarrassment and, and vulnerability that comes from our mistakes and our doing gets attached to our being. Because the whole culture lives in this flesh, so it thinks that your doing is your being. So instead of being something that you did the wrong thing, it's rather you are the wrong thing. We internalize it. The the natural sort of shame that comes from from, uh, making a mistake now gets attached to your being. It's what some call toxic shame. You live in that. It's not that that, that you just did a mistake, it's that you are a mistake. Parents, it's so, 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 so vital. 
that when you're disciplining your children, you make a very clear distinction between what they did and who they are. It's so important that they know that who they are is full of love and full of life and full of worth and it's unconditional and it will never go away. Remind them of that, especially when you're in the process of disciplining them. You crack down on the behavior, but while you're doing it, affirm their their worthwhileness. And that's the most effective way because it's God's way of changing the behavior. Some time ago, my daughter, Alicia, who is um, just a wonderful human being and just an angel, well, in this case, she wasn't such an angel. Um, yeah, she, she screwed up. I got her permission to use her as an example. Yeah, she made some bad choices, really bad choices, and we had to crack down big time on this. And I, my wife and I went down to, to, to her bedroom after this got exposed, and, and what we did was we just, first thing is came around her and we just said, you know what, we love you so much. You are such a precious kid. And you're a joy to us. And, and we, we, can, we consider it a privilege that God gave you to us to raise. And you're just so full of worth and you're just a beautiful human being. But this is not you. It, it, what you what, this thing that you did, this is not who you are. This is not consistent. You're, you're, you're different than this. And that's why we've got to crack down on this real hard. It's because we love you so much. But you've got to know that your worth, nothing will ever affect this. We're going to cry down on this, but this is about what you did. It's not about who you are. And you see, when you love like that, this is what the soul was made for. There's a reflection, a mirror of God's love in those words. Because her soul is meant to receive unconditional and unsurpassable worth. And she can sniff it in our words. And see, what that does... It begins to break the child in a healthy way. They begin to melt under that. They begin to soften under that because it's what they were made to hear. And now they're motivated out of a fullness to want to change the behavior rather than out of a shame that they've got to do it to get that love. You see how crucial this is to distinguish between? But so often we become the shame of our behavior. I remember as, a, as, as about a third grader, um, I was in peewee baseball. And uh, there's this one game. We had a guy on this team named Sam. And Sam was just a uh, petite kind of guy. Uh, he couldn't hit a ball if his life depended on it. I think he would have made a great artist or an accountant or something. But he wasn't a baseball player unless he, like, really got into a lot of steroids in the eighth grade or something. I don't know. But, but in third grade, the, the poor kid, he just wasn't a good baseball player. But he was nice and, and, and whatever. There was one game where we were down one run, and it was the bottom of the sixth inning, and that's all the innings you play uh, in, in uh, peewee baseball. And uh, he was up to bat. There's two outs. One, we were down one run. There's two guys on base. If we just get a hit, we'll, we'll you know, stay in the game. And Sam comes up to bat. And we're, we're just, like, all of us in the dugout are thinking, oh, no, this game's over. Or what we were really doing is saying, Sam, jump in front of the ball, get hit, you get a free base. <laughs> but see, poor Sam, Sam struck out. He always struck out. And that, you know, that's, that's just Sam. But his dad came down from the stands and grabbed, right in front of the, 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 the bullpen or whatever they call it, dugout, and grabbed him by the arm and was so angry and, and, and just reamed him out for striking out. So, how many times have I told you, you've you, you got to plant that right foot, you keep your elbow up, and you keep your eye on the ball, you've got to move this again. And poor Sam is just so ashamed, he's already humiliated, and now his dad is doing this in front of all of us. And see, with Sam now, it's not just that he did a strikeout, it's that he was a strikeout. He was a disappointment. And that gets internalized. And I've thought about Sam occasionally, here and there throughout life, and I've wondered about him. 
It's likely that Sam is still trying to hit a home run for dad. You know what? He becomes a strikeout and he's trying to not be that, so he'll just achieve and achieve and work and strive and trying to get, trying to fill this hole that was installed by the lie that he got in third grade. Or probably was another other times as well. Man, maybe he's a, a huge corporate rich person. I don't know. But he's still empty because he's trying to hit the home run for dad. Maybe he doesn't even talk to his dad anymore, but he's got a dad in his brain. And he's trying to avoid that shame and humiliation that he got then. Or maybe Sam concluded that he was a strikeout, that dad was right. And now he's going to spend his life trying to get worth by being a loser. You can do that too. I've tried it. By how bad you are, look at this. You prove to yourself. It's a sick way of trying to get life. Or maybe, and this is my prayer, maybe Sam, maybe Sam found Jesus Christ. And, I, and if he did, I pray there's a time in his, in his private time with, with Jesus where he would just see Jesus, his real dad. His, his earthly dad was just there to point him to the real dad anyways. He didn't do a very good job of it in third grade. But, but in time of prayer, I would pray that Sam could see and hear Jesus coming down from the stands after that strikeout and saying, I can just picture him rubbing Sam's head and going, you know what, Sam? It's a stupid baseball game. It doesn't mean a thing. So what? No, and you've got to know this. I, I, have I told you recently how, how wonderful I think you are? I don't care whether you can hit a ball or not. You are so precious in my eye. Let's go out and get an ice cream cone together because I like spending time with you. Forget the stupid game. We'll work on your batting if you want. Maybe you'll get a hit next year. It doesn't matter. Who you are matters. And I say that you're all together wonderful. You're the greatest kid on the planet. Oh, how Sam needed to hear that. I pray he hears it now. We all got little Sam lies in our life that, that, that keep us from receiving and hearing and seeing the fullness of life that God wants us to have. There's a song I want to play here uh, that just communicates this truth in a wonderful way. I love this song. I want you to think about this as you're listening to this song. What lies does this confront in your life? As you hear this, is there any part of you that resists it and says it's not true? Let the Lord confront those as you hear the truth that all you need is found in Jesus Christ.
That is life. That is joy. The only one who loves you just as you are. Do you believe that? Do you really, really believe that? Do you have trust that that is true? Because if you do, everything else is negotiable. It will come in time. But no, the only thing you need, that's life. That, that is what it means to be free. Praise God. I want to, for believers here this morning, encourage you throughout this week and make this a regular practice to be exposing the Sam-like lies in your life. Locate them in prayer. And let Jesus, invite Jesus into the place where those lies were lodged, sometimes in a memory. And see Jesus marvelously and beautifully reverse that, rub you on the head, tell you, you know what, it just doesn't matter. It's not the truth. The truth is that you are just lovely. I love you just as you are. We'll take care of everything about the doing, but you've got to know at the start who you are. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, let me talk to you for one minute. Getting in on this whole thing, this wonderful dance that God wants you to dance with, this fullness of life, the start of it is opening up your heart and saying, I want it. Maybe you've been trying to get life in a lot of different ways, and maybe you're beginning to realize that that's not where it's found. If you want to, believers, we'd be praying right now that the Holy Spirit will move. If this morning you want to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, I would like to just pray with you from up here. Would you just raise your hand very high? Just to, before God to say, you know what, I know I need that. I know I need that. Anybody here at all? This is a time where, oh, up here, brother, I see that hand. Wonderful. Others? You're just saying, I, back there, over there, wonderful, wonderful. You're saying, I surrender. I, I can't get life on my own. I want that fullness of life. You're created for this. Anybody else? Just raise your hand very quickly. The Lord made it so simple because he wants over there, the father and a son looks like, or a little boy and a dad or a guy. Wonderful. Praise God. God cries with joy when you surrender to him because now he gets to love you like he's always wanted to love you. Anybody else? Maybe I, I didn't see your hand if you raised it, or maybe you just haven't raised it. But if you want to pray this prayer, well, I'll pray it with you. Pray it from the depths of your heart. It's just a, a start in this walk with God. Pray it out loud. Heavenly Father, you are outrageous in your love for me. I know that I have not lived the way you want me to live. But I thank you that you love me anyways. And I believe that you sent Jesus to die for me. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sin. And give me that life that I've always longed for. Thank you, Lord, for loving me and for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to welcome you to the dance. I want to welcome you to the life. I want to welcome you to the journey. Amen. Amen. All the angels in heaven rejoice over that. What you started right now, the five or six or seven who raised their hand and others who prayed the prayer, is a journey. You're just joining us in the journey to live out what we just talked about. 
the first, I want to encourage you in the middle of the auditorium in the back. We have a, sec, a table there for, for new believers. We have some information that we just want to give you for free, no strings attached. I want to ask you to stop by there and just pick that up. It will give you some help on getting started in the Christian life. Uh, would the prayer team come forward? And I want to invite you uh, forward for prayer. If there's anything at all that you want to pray about, these people would be glad to spend some time praying with you about that. Uh, remember the Metrodome tonight, if you can possibly make it. Go forth and live the outrageous love. Receive the outrageous and give the outrageous love that God is to everyone you see. In Jesus' name, amen.